0: Welcome back to the third year of the Netflix podcast, Present Company. I'm your host, Krista Smith. This season, we have something really special for you. I'll be exploring universal human emotion with our guests. Fear, a word that has gathered new meaning for many of us over the past year. Thank you for joining me.
1: Been through the storm.
0: That was the voice of the British singer, songwriter, and producer James Samuel, the mastermind behind the epic Western The Harder They Fall, who makes his featured debut with this film. And it's an absolute showstopper. I mean, first of all, the cast is off the charts. Idris Elba, Regina King, Delroy Lindo, Jonathan Majors, Ozzie Beats, Lakeith, it's literally a who's who. The music, the costumes, the fight sequences. This movie is gonna blow your mind. And I was mesmerized by it. Here is the brilliant James Samuel. James, very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you, Krista. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about The Harder They Fall. I love this movie. I wrote my college thesis on the Western genre, so you could not have had a more perfect audience than myself to watch this and consume it. And I just love how you've flipped it on its head. So I want to talk to you about why a Western, why the genre, what about it resonated with you so deeply that you wanted to make this This film? Well, you
1: you know, growing up in London, they used to always have like the matinees on. They used to have like on TV, they're like 2 p.m. matinee and they'll show a lot of westerns. And and the UK would always show like old TV serials like Champion the Wonder Horse, High Chaparral, Rawhide, Bonanza. So those would get me addicted from the minute I came out of the womb because they still show them now. Then I love cinema right I love film but westerns were always my favourite genre and then you start watching the, The Searchers The Big Country Johnny Guitar and then The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and just all of these great westerns and then it went to Italy right and you had the Sergio Leone and Sergio Cabucci westerns and I don't know what was the allure about the Old West for me but the the cowboys and just the imagery, they were just always so cool. So I really just was drawn to that, um, to that genre of, of film. And also, I think with Westerns, I could never see the filmmaking behind it. Jim Stewart in um, Winchester 73, you just accept it as that time and that place. I, I would never be able to see the filmmaking, no matter how hammy the acting was or how kind of run of the mill or, or straightforward the story, story was Shane was just Shane he really did exist Mm
0: -hmm. there was
1: no Michael Landon Mm -hmm. that's Bonanza that's real real stuff I think that's what drew me so much to the Westerns just the the transportation to this real environment So to speak.
0: You're listening like that is like the classics. Also, I loved watching Big Valley growing up, too, with Barbara Stanwyck as the, you know, the female. You you rarely saw that, but you really saw the female as the the kind of power player in these. And also, one thing, you just listed so many great Westerns, lots of great directors and actors. But the one thing that's always missing is Black Cowboys... (laughs) In these films. (laughs) Black and brown people. Um, And sometimes even awfully Native Americans were even played by Caucasian actors with with pancake on. So for you, you've completely turned this on its head, which I love. And in the beginning of the film, and there's no spoilers here, it does say like these people existed. Yeah. And you completely align with the genre, which I was so into with all of these kind of iconic images that resonate for us. We remember seeing that, whether it's Clint Eastwood, whether it's Jimmy Stewart, like you mentioned, the cowboy, the lone gunman, the robbery, the trains, all of it is there. But what's different is everybody is black. And so can you please talk about that and kind of what, aside from loving the genre, what specifically to a Western and amplifying the Black Cowboy was important to you?
1: Well, it was a couple of things. One, as much as I love Westerns, there was always these glaring inconsistencies with them in the portrayal of people of color and the portrayal of women, right? So, as soon as we go period, in, in just the history of, of Hollywood, as soon as we go period, people of colour and women are subservient immediately, right? Women are subservient to men. It's always a, a weekly written female character who's just... Helplessly in love and people of color. If there was a black person in the Western, they'll always give reason for that black person being there. If there was an Asian in the Western, they'll always be wearing blue and doing laundry. If there's a Mexican, they'll show like short guys wearing white and running fast, how they are in um, the Magnificent Seven, the original. Mm -hmm. Or they'll show like these big, hairy, overweight people with bullets. Either side of them, which I personally believe that Chewbacca is influenced by those stereotypical portrayals of I've never, ever met a Mexican person that talks like that or looks like that. Right. So growing up, I just wanted to see more of myself in those films. So I would just do research and get books like surely there was black people, people of color in the Old West that weren't slaves. I started uncovering all of these rich Characters with these rich histories that I was never taught about. I know all the words to Doris Day's Calamity Jane. They got those fancy clothes, pretty ladies with the big chateaus. <laughs> private lawns, public parks, for the sake of civic virtues. They've got fountains there that squirts you. <laughs> I just got back from the Windy City. Windy City is mighty pretty, but they ain't got what we got. I'm telling you, boy, we got more style in Deadwood City than all of Illinois. Okay. I've seen that movie so many times as a kid that I know all the words to Windy City. All right. But yet I've never learned about Stagecoach Mary. Mm. I've never learned about Cathay Williams. Learned about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Jesse James and the coward Robert Ford. We learned about all of these people. But you never learned about Rufus Buck, Cherokee Bill, Jim Beckwith, Wiley Esco, Bass Reeves, who was the the inspiration for the long rangers when i started uncovering all of these characters i was thinking to myself for years how come i've never seen them on screen so when i found out about these characters i was like let me just pull them all into one story i made a fictional story and brought all of these real characters into it and assembled them like the avengers and told the story of the harder they fall so you can watch the harder they fall and then go and really learn about rufus buck about cherokee bill about gertrude smith and stage hodge mirror and just all of these amazing characters just to kind of like bring balance to the force so to speak
0: Mm -hmm. i love the way you kept to those the western tropes when i watched your film i accepted it as reality yeah, I had the same, like what well, you were talking about watching Shane, Shane was just Shane so I would say to you, I felt the same way watching this film, I completely yeah. accepted oh, it. Thank you so much I have to at this point talk about some of the cast in this because in that yeah. they are playing fictionalized versions of real characters in history, right? Yeah. And it is a it is a phenomenal cast, I'll just go through a few of the names here, Regina King Idris Elba, Jonathan Majors, Lakeith Stanfield, Delroy Lindo who's one of my all-time favorites and And uh, whatnot. But let's talk about Jonathan Majors, because he is your lead cowboy here. He is the, you know, the gunslinger out for revenge, the classic archetype of the cowboy hero. Villain that we know and I love that everybody's a little of both which is so great uh, in a Western no one's no one's pure good and no, no one's, one's pure yeah. evil <laughs> yeah
1: yeah. everyone's like everyone's shysty. yeah it's just bad and bad <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: so talk to me about why you thought he was perfect uh, for Nat Love like what was it about him as an actor and kind of what was it like working with him
1: do you know what was crazy with Jonathan Major's When I cast him for The Harder They Fall, Last Black Man in San Francisco wasn't released yet, so I hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen White Boy Rick. Nat Love is really... He was a really hard guy to cast because he holds the whole story together. While all of this stuff is happening, he has to be kind of stoic and straight and hold the whole film together. But Johnson was given an interview for White Boy Rick. He was just given an interview for it. And he answered one question. For the life of me, I cannot remember what question that was, Krista. I went, That's Matt Love. He is Matt Love. I didn't even read him for the role. He didn't audition, considering that he'd never headlined a movie before. I knew in my heart and soul that was Matt Love. And I knew nothing about him physically. It turns out he's actually a real life cowboy. There's no stuntman for Jonathan Majors in that movie. All of those stunts, he's galloping full speed with no hands, shooting. On target. That's all him.
0: Wow. He's
1: always ridden horses. He's from Texas, so he's family. He grew up like a cowboy. But I never knew any of this. We got on the phone and we were speaking about who Nat Love is. And that evening, he sent me a poem. And it was beautiful, even just my, in, a, in a monologue, I'm, I'm feeling for the character, and I, I knew it was him. Like, come, come hell or high water, I was casting Jonathan Majors, which is why I love Netflix, because I don't know if any other studio would have let me done that with a, with a person with no track record of leading such a big movie. And Netflix gave me literally zero opposition. They just were like, yeah. And, and then it turns out he's got, he had all this other stuff coming out which is amazing but it was pure instinct it was pure pure instinct why i cast jonathan majors i'm kind of like that with a with a few of of my cast members but jonathan was unique in that i hadn't seen anything he was in i just saw an interview mm-hmm. after which i saw a bunch of things he was in but i had already cast him by then as <laughs> well oh.
0: That is a great... I mean, first of all, he's so um, humble about his riding skills because I have talked to him before, and he he's like, oh, yeah, I knew how to ride a horse. He's very like, casual about it, but I, I love hearing that. Facts. Facts. He was doing those stunts. I love that. He said to me, Krista, on
1: set, I went, where did you learn to do that? When he... A full tilt gallop. It's in the trailer. A full tilt gallop shooting <laughs> his enemies on target. Oh, where did you learn to do that? And he said the darndest thing. He said, I can't do it. Oh, what? He went, I can't do it. Nat Love can. But I don't know how to ride. I don't know how to <laughs> do all that stuff. But Nat Love does. It's such a crazy thing that he just trots off, he just trots <laughs> off to wherever it was he was going. Like him and the horse became super close, right? You'll see Jonathan and the horse talking talking to each other. They were inseparable. So on set, I'd look to the far distance, and I would see Jonathan having a full conversation with the horse. It was just the most fascinating, fascinating thing. Him and the horse were, were a unit, because everyone's riding at that point, but with Jonathan and his horse, it was different. Like, he'll trot backwards, come forward, be doing tricks on the horse. You'd think that he, that he you know, birthed the horse, but... It was
0: amazing. I just love it. Well, one of the other things that, like, you know, exactly, like a horse and the tricks and the galloping, you know, these are all things that we kind of associate with Westerns. But what we don't associate with Westerns is this modern energy. And you accomplish that, obviously, with a with the script and the dialogue that's happening um, and the conversations. I'm thinking particularly that modern relationship between both stagecoach Mary and Nat Love and then with Regina and Idris. Those are kind of modern, you know, elevated conversations. But it's the music. The music just lights this film on fire. Obviously, you're a musician. You come from a wildly talented family. I was looking you up. But for you, the music is everything, Yeah. In this movie. So I want to talk to you about, like, how did you integrate that? What was the symphony that was happening in your head while you're directing this film to know where to put what music when? I just want you to talk a little bit about tying those two things together.
1: Well, it's really interesting because I composed the score for the movie, right? I wrote and produced the entire soundtrack. So, but for me, Krista... They are exactly the same thing. So when I'm writing, for instance, you know, they, they sing their battle chant. Upon my return, <laughs> see you change its soul. That road was long, far and way too long. They'll run from me as they ran from you. And that fear in me is in a distant view. I would be writing that as I'm writing the scripts. As I'm writing the script, I'm writing the motifs for all of the characters and what was important to me is, as you know, you are, we all watched westerns growing up. I would always categorise the westerns by the forms of music in them. So I have my acoustic guitar here. So say like the old westerns, right, would be like her name was the riding up the hill, and that would be like the rawhide type westerns. And as the music changed. So did the aesthetic of the film. So did the actual cinematography, or vice versa. And then we, we got into the big orchestral Elmer Bernstein type, Magnificent Seven, for instance. <speaking> in <Spanish> and then it went to Italy. And Ennio Morricone, who was a college friend of Sergio Leone. He was using the electric guitar, which is still, which was still a relatively new instrument then. He'll have like a electric guitar and just voices, not even big orchestra. He would have like ding, 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 like what? they win, win, they win. Like with he made a song for for a singer called Pete Tavis, Pastures of Plenty. Sergio Leone heard it, and that's what I want for my movie but this has vocals on it. The man with the... Sergio Nelson, remove the vocals. I want this. And that became the basis of all, pretty much all those spaghetti westerns. So for me, with The Harder They Fall, I was always trying to figure out what is the signature of this movie? What is the signature sound of this film? And when I was like... Eight years old or something. I always heard Barrington Levy's song "Here I Come." Right? It's a it's a dancehall record. Here I come, still the alley, the Oh, see, here I come, bam, 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 bam. And I'd listen to that song, and I would see Gallopin, because Barrington Levy's vocal. He has a signature, and he, and he goes. It's like a tongue roll. Steely allie, 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 whoa. Oh, oh. See, here I come. And While he's going, Steely allie, allie. I always saw galloping behind it, and now I'm a man, and I'm making a, making a film, and I figured, hey, let me rebuild that track. Contact Barrington Levy, guide vocal it. Have him come in and sing it for the score, and then <laughs> that's what's in the teaser right Almost like the driving force of the score is dub old school reggae dub when I landed on that, I knew that I had it. like how do you make this Western new give us something we've never heard before as well as something we've never we've never seen before? And it was all of those things I blended together to to compose the score of the Hardly fall as I' as I'm writing, because music and film are the, are the same thing for me, I'll give each character their own song, which might not make it into the into the movie, but they have their own song, and from that song, I will discover their their motif. So, uh, St. George Mary's song, because we spoke about Stage George Mary, her song, which is not in the film, but her song is is and her story is uh, a song I wrote for her called "World Inside Your Rainbow." Right, and she's speaking to that to that love, love. And, and it's and it's a uh, it goes. Uh. down like rain You still couldn't call my name, there's a world inside your rainbow For as the world turns around I'm the same All the tears falling down like rain You still couldn't call my name, there's a world inside your rainbow And then I will build her story out and her relationship with Nat Love out from the basis of that song, and I wrote that song for her like ten years ago.
0: James, I was just gonna say, listening to that song, I'm like, that's that's her, like that yeah. her whole character, has that yeah. vibe and feel of the tones of that song that I just listened to. It's like I immediately picture her. Just like now, I I only think of that opening song as galloping. I. Yeah, it's interesting how that it's like the chicken or the egg. What what comes from it? But can only now think of that song as as those horses galloping and the and the opening is amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's- Thank you.
1: And so it's a really seamless. It's a really seamless thing. The story, the script, the, the songs, and characters. So it it just turns into one big opera but they all inform each other it's kind of like all one stream of of consciousness mm-hmm. unless we have the of they fall mm-hmm.
0: well i noticed that also jay-z is in here as a producer and you collaborated with him so at what what point does he come in with this is he saying great that's awesome or no pull that back i mean where are your own guardrails here for yourself like tell me a little bit about that partnership and how you get to that final final product i've always said
1: good artists create great artists listen so the important thing is to not have any guardrails right for me and just close your eyes and absorb the best of everyone right and just listen to everyone and with me and jay can we go back years now right over 10 years the first um, collaboration we did was actually with a song um, with Jay Electronica and Charlotte Gainsbourg. Go figure. I called the song Dinner at Tiffany's. Hmm. And then after them, we did like Jay Electronica's album this years ago and Jay Electronica first signed to Rock Nation. And then him and I did Gatsby together. We put together all the music for the, the Great Gatsby um, movie with, with Baz Luhrmann. So me and Jay have always had a collaborative relationship, But what people don't know about Jay, obviously we know he's a great businessman and we know he's an amazing um, artist, but they obviously haven't seen him in the film space. So they wouldn't know how versed he is in film. This man, is, there's not an area he's not familiar with. So when I'm writing, when I was writing, he would, without giving away spoilers, where I'll be in a debate with someone about what happens in a particular scene, and this would go on time and time again. Like, me and James Lasseter, our other producer, we would be talking about, OK, should Nat Love pull his gun straight away or should he hold it and this and that, and that and Jay would always be the final word on it. Jay would say, look, here's the thing. I've been in that exact scenario, right? And he'll tell me a story about him and a, him and a, a guy called Pint, incidentally, from his his area with one particular scene. I was like, oh, my God. And he was like... You wouldn't, you wouldn't shoot straight away. You want to get to the bottom of it. There's a reason why you don't um, shoot straight away. Other times you shoot straight away. He'll be speaking about all those things, or Nat Love's relationship with George Mary, and the nuances in it, stuff he went through with his wife was public on the Lemonade album. And, the and Jay would like be talking to me and talking through all of those issues and areas in the script, to, you know, to make it more real. Why would Mary? Without spoilers, why would Mary be listening to that after he supposedly disappeared? And just all of these, all of these things. So he was present in every single aspect of the of me writing the script and making the music. Like a couple of songs, we co-wrote together. Like it's just working with Jay is like breathing. It's like breathing air. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah. bre- breathing air, pandemic free. Yeah. You know I, mean? yeah.
0: I know. And you did this movie in the pandemic, too. I mean, that's just even more remarkable that this was all of this scope and scale that's able to happen in this film, as well as so many great action scenes and whatnot and emotional scenes. It's all done under this giant cloud of COVID. Madness.
1: We were meant to shoot last March and we got shut down the day before shooting because this new disease called COVID. And then Idris came down with COVID while we were filming. What was amazing about it, Krista, is it's my debut movie. So we shot in the eye of the needle that's in the middle of that COVID tornado. It was madness. However, because I'd never shot a movie before, having to direct standing six feet away from people with goggles, with goggles and a face mask, it was just like okay, these must be the rules of filmmaking then. It's like learning to drive in a Bugatti as opposed to a Mini Cooper, <laughs> right? If you can't drive, you can't drive. So look, I was just like, you give me the parameters and I will shoot it. I'll shoot my movie. Just tell me where I have to stand, what I have to wear, and let me do, let me do the rest. Because, um, you know, I grew up in, a, in, in the hood in, in the UK. Harrow Road, Kilburn Lane, Mozart Estate. As bad as the pandemic is, growing up in those areas, <laughs> it was kind of more dangerous. <laughs> so so um, I was like, OK, I'm prepared for, for, for whatever it is. I just have to get this story told. And I had a great time doing it. I always say, like, the film we make is for the public. The making of the movie is for us. So I would be blasting music on set. Every spare moment, I had my sound mayor, Anthony Ortiz he built me a, a huge speaker in my video village and I'd blast it out to the whole um, set. So it was like having fancy dress parties in the evening shoot. <laughs> it's like a, a club in the Old West and everyone's on the street waiting for the turnaround and we're all jamming. So it was amazing. It was a really amazing experience.
0: Well, you feel that energy. And there's there's another thing I want to talk to you about it, which is the palette. The palette is so rich. The reds, there's so many versions of red, you know, and that color wheel. I didn't know there could be so many shades of red. And then obviously yeah. in the blanched white and white town and all of the, you know the colors and all of that. So can you just talk to me about like why was playing with that palette? so important to the telling of the story? Well, well, one,
1: I think the Old West was super colorful because life is colorful, right? So, you know when you watch a movie in the 70s, but based in the 70s, and it's all kind of hazy and desaturated, I'm not, but that couldn't be how the 70s looked. The 70s would look like 2021, color-wise. And I never really get that in films, like especially westerns. I don't really get it, but life is super colourful. All the shades of brown, even the shades of white, is super colourful. I I wanted to see that in the movie, and I definitely hadn't seen it in a western before. So my production designer and my costume designer worked hand-in-hand to deliver me that look. My production designer is a man called Martin Wist. He did a movie called Cabin in the Woods. Mm. If you remember the production design of that movie, it it is insane. From the evil dead cabin to the whole sci-fi world underneath. And then he did a film called Bad Times at the El Royale. And I thought that was a production design-wise yeah, really beautiful movie. And then my costume designer, Antoinette Messon, she was my first hire on this movie, so she understood what I was going for from the beginning. So she would show me all the shades of blue and all the shades of green and all shades of brown and and we had to kind of work in tandem with the production designer myself to kind of get the right balance and just to make things pop on the screen because I always say, Krista, I always say, when you put black people in a western, it's not a western no more. It's like watching Star Wars for the first time. So we can really toy with it. Also... You know, there were people in the Old West that were really (laughs) clean. A man that used to run with Wild Bill Hickok, his name was Charlie Utter, right? He's in Deadwood, the TV show. They said Charlie Utter would only wear clothes imported from overseas. And he was obsessed with taking a bath every single day. Basically, this man was a swagged out dude from 2021. But he was in the in the cowboy days when when we speak about the old west and you know these people that exist in that space of time that weren't slaves that weren't subservient if you ask anyone to guess when Wyatt Earp died right they'll probably say i don't know 17 or 1803 wyatt earp died in 1929 Right. Gunfight the OK Corral was 1888. The Emancipation Proclamation Act was signed in the eighteen sixties. There was decades of the old West, with people of color being in there and women being non-subservient, so to speak. I think all of these things and all of these realities lend to how far you can really push the genre of the Western. Like you and I love Westerns, Krista, but they kind of stopped being made, so we never really got to see what more could be done with them? And when they would make a Western, I suppose, like, Quinton and Django, he was mm-hmm. pushing, but there's no cowboys in in Django, so for me it wasn't necessarily a Western in that regard. But then you have, uh, like, if you have from, like, open range, Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall, but still very kind of rainy and think, and pulled back
0: yeah yeah i think the last one real real i think of is the unforgiven which is eastwood but that's like a visit of eastwood that's so heavy with other things because he you know he came to be defined by that in in a way like you said with all the movies that he did and in, in you know, the spaghetti Westerns, so to speak. It is interesting that it didn't really evolve, but if you actually think about the Western, it was so instrumental in building the business of Hollywood and also instrumental in building the vision of what people come to think of what America is, right? The scopes, the loans, the Marlboro Man, you know, all of this imagery is so iconic and embedded in our brains about, like, it's synonymous with what people think about in America, at least in that kind of Hollywood way. Certainly it was. I mean, I think obviously things are changing, but it really was.
1: Yeah. And Eastwood, incidentally, was a guy that he brought in another genre of the Westerns, which I call the acoustic rainy Western, where it's kind of rainy, it's kind of a much more grim telling. I'll say he started with High Plains Drifter. And then into Unforgiven, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Because after Unforgiven, then you start getting movies like The Proposition and, and, and movies where it's heavy with rain and the and and score will just be one acoustic guitar. I'm here to kill you, little Bill, <laughs> for what you did to my friend Ned. Like, like, and that was like another genre. But it's just really awesome to be able to tell this story, as you said, turn the genre on its head, offer something entirely new, and swag out with the music. In the words of L- Little Richard, I mean, that's what you want. You want to feel it in your toes. I want to feel it in my toes. I want to watch. I want to watch this movie and like really be nodding to the, to the, to the score. And, and I also believe, Krista, that we've kind of lost, over the past, I suppose, maybe 15 years or so, we've kind of lost the score a little bit. If we go to the 80s and even early 90s, we could sing all the scores. It's few and far between that I come away from a film with a motif. Of a score, like in the in the same way.
0: Well, I just said what comes to mind to me is like staying alive. I mean, you know, the yeah. BGS and Saturday Night Fever and that whole thing is like so synonymous. We, I just don't think we do it anymore. And then I think of the Rocky theme or the Rocky movies. But I'm yeah. hard pressed to think of. Well, I do think of Beverly Hills Cop and that. Dun, dun, I yeah. can't do it. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> Axel, what do
1: they
0: call it? Axel <laughs> Foley is his own Axel theme music. Foley. But it is hard. We don't we don't think of that necessarily. Um, and I loved the way Antoine Fuqua did a little bit in the remake of The Magnificent Seven, which my boys loved. I've seen that movie probably a hundred times with them because they loved that that Denzel version, right? They just really gravitated towards it. But you heard that little like, you know, he did an homage in the beginning. It was just that little. He kind of changed the
1: motif in the movie, but on the credits, he played on the end credits. He played the actual song. If I was him, I would use that through the whole film. That's one of the best themes of all time, and, and so I really wanted to give us songs and, and score that we can come away come away with with mm-hmm. the harder the they fall.
0: It's it's great, and you did. And I've seen the film a few times, and and the music is just like always. I'm like who's that song? It just feels so good to be sitting in it oh, and listening cool. to it. Oh, um, we have like
1: great artists on the soundtrack as well.
0: The whole time I was watching this film. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I was thinking about what else have we not seen on film? Erased feels like too strong of a word, but something that hasn't ever been examined in a real honest way. What's been omitted. What's been omitted in our culture? Because I think this film is going to have a, a big impact on that, you know, and I grew up in Colorado, so part of me is in that West and maybe it's in my bones and obviously I there were Black Cowboys that I knew, like you said, with your lead actor here, Jonathan Majors, grew up, you know, around horses. So is there anything else that you're examining? I mean, I know this movie is about to come out, but is there something else that you're thinking about in your head about examining and and pulling back the curtain?
1: (laughs) There's something else, all right, Christoph, but but uh, I I'm not gonna speak on it yet. But yeah, there is I think this the what what's great about working or operating now in the in the field is there's so much more outlets, there's so much more areas where you can show film, such as the streamers, that the studios aren't as fearful to fund stories with people of colour and, and women in them with prominent roles. I, I think the um the studios now are a bit more like I know Netflix is a bit more I wouldn't even say risk-taking because I don't believe it's a risk showing actual human beings in (laughs) human stories I think it's more risk when you just omit a whole race of people but there's so many areas where we've been I think the word we could say is omitted right which is not necessarily as strong as erased I would go to erased but omitted there's there's so many areas that I think now is a time we could have these conversations and we can, we can tell these stories. When I announce the next joint that I'm doing, you're going to grin from ear to ear. Like, ah, oh, I like that James <laughs> guy. He's special.
0: <laughs> Good. I can't wait. All right. So my last question is I'm discussing fear this season with everybody because I feel like no matter how successful or prolific. Anybody is. We all have our own relationship with fear, right? Whether it propels us to fight through something, whether it stops us from doing something. And as an artist in particular, it can be pervasive at different times. So... I want to talk to you a little bit about fear, just like what is your relationship with it? And I think this is fascinating getting to know you over the course of this conversation. You had to do your make your feature film debut in the middle of covid with a massive cast of giants. Okay, you know, we didn't even get into Idris Elba and and Regina and all of those and Lakeith and whatnot. But you're dealing with a, a large cast with lots of stories that are happening simultaneously and 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 characters and all of that but you persevered through that and the music and everything so for you James what is your relationship with fear right now how do you feel how do you get how do you break through it how do you live in it you know how do you work with it just talk to me okay
1: it's a really interesting thing and it's really strange that you ask that question because I always talk to people about fear always fear of rejection, fear of acceptance, fear of, of failure. And I don't have those things because I grew up in Mozart state with fear, will you be fearing for your life? In those areas, I don't have them. I think it's, it's perspective, I put things into, into perspective and, and nothing would, um, would compare to in that regard to what I experienced. Just growing up like being around the environment that i was in incidentally though we do all have fears right like i'm super scared of spiders right okay so peep this i'm scared of the dark up to now i'm scared of the dark right the first song i ever wrote for someone was a girl called Emiliana Torini. She's an amazing singer songwriter from Iceland. She sung, sung Gollum's theme on Lord of the Rings. This lady's amazing. She's Grammy nominated. Amazing. She asked me to write a song for her. It's probably like 2007 or something. I was a kid and I wrote her this song called Serenade. And the whole song is about me being afraid of the dark. It's like a folk lullaby and i'm really afraid of the dark like if i'm sleeping by myself there's going to be some kind of light coming in and the song goes moonlight falling picturesque in its dance. midnight calling moonlight shadows start to dance for the dark finds ways of being Engraved in the light, and the heart bears indentations of yesterday's hurting child, The now we will run with smiles, the morrow will heal the night for Morning comes Midnight Make fast with the sun I can hear my name be reborn On the cloud within the sky Beneath the dawn Oh, I serenade the dawn And it's about me being a child In the dark And not uh, being able to wait for the sun to come out to end, and I still have that fear today. And that fear of the dark is a bizarre thing because I can't even find reason for it. But the fear of the dark is is as prominent and as real as someone else's fear of failure, as someone else's fear of rejection. But ultimately, Those fears have no weight. An Uber driver asked me, what am I scared of? And I told him, I'm scared of the dark. I mean, I'm not scared of anything to do with other human beings, because I grew up in the hood, but I am scared of the dark. He went, why are you scared of the dark? He went, are you a a singer, a songwriter? I went, I'm an artist. I I write and I make something. That is why. Your imagination is um, over, over... Uh, active. I don't really? He went, yes. Then, what are you scared of? I was like, I don't know, but I know something else is there in the dark. And he said, well, if something is there in the dark, it should be afraid of you because you come in. What music you listen to? I said, I like hip hop. Exactly. You come in, you play your hip hop. You play, I mean, you disturb the thing in the dark. Has he ever disturbed you or she ever? I went, no, exactly. So ultimately these fears, I think they're somehow there to protect us. Fear of failure, like it has no, no power. Like fear of rejection. Invite rejection in and sit down. You know the girl you we used to like when we were kids that we were scared to talk to? Okay, but invite rejection in. Sit it down. You'd realize it's just a powerless, invisible force. It's like we give power to all of these Things There's no logic why I should be afraid of the dark. Krista, I am afraid of the dark. <laughs> if you turn off all the lights now, I'm bouncing. But I have to go to sleep every night. So I have to, I have to deal with it. And I deal with it, Krista, every single night. Like,
0: what do you do? You have a no. night lights or you sleep? Fifteen!
1: I've got <laughs> fifteen light lights. I call it the light switch. Quick. I'm just sleeping <laughs> with the light on. When I'm at home, I'm with my wife and my son. So then it's cool, I can, I can like, snuggle up in the, in the dark. When I'm by myself, like out here, it's just something I have to embrace, close my eyes and get through. With regards to fear in other areas, I think we were just thrown through the ringer growing up on, on Harrow Road. So you can't help but equate those experiences to what you go through as a, as a professional. In a field of like film or or music, and you realize that that they don't necessarily compare. the <laughs> next time we meet, I'll tell you I'll tell you a story of this guy, this Debo in the hood character. And I didn't make any trouble on this guy. Next minute I heard he was looking for me. He was the most terrifying weekend <laughs> ever. And he was a, he was the first person with a gun we knew. He lived his life like the old West. And hearing this guy was looking for me, he was like the most Terrifying, and then there was this, this club that was on, and I knew he was gonna be there, but the night at the club was so amazing, Crystal. If I missed it, I'd never be able to go. So I had to go, I just went. And making that decision to go, I've never been in a scenario where, where there was um, uh, another stronger decision with a more dire outcome. Then go into that place knowing he was gonna he was gonna be there. And it was all because I'll tell you the next time we speak, but it was all because I was listening to a Kate Bush C D. Babush, get Babush, Just Bush I was listening to a Kate Bush C D. It turned into like this big thing in the in the area. Like the hood is the most craziest, beautifulest place. <laughs> like, well, get in trouble.
0: Well, Kate Bush. <laughs> like, what that's, that's what I have appreciated so much in this in this hour with you is how every bit of you is in this film. The humor, your passion, the music, the violence, little bits of all of you are in this film. And that's a beautiful thing to actually I, I feel very privileged that I got to talk to you because now oh, I understand so it all so much. Um
1: you can get it now,
0: right? It <laughs> I get it now. And we didn't even talk yeah. about the the humor in the film is is just spot on. It's it's um really well handled and and well paced and everything. So but it has been an absolute pleasure and I am going to have to have another conversation with you because I feel like, you know, we should just maybe I'd love to do a
1: part 2 with you. Yeah. And also you like, I love speaking to people that like just love films. Yeah as well.
0: That's like, me for sure. And I realized before I let you go, one thing we didn't talk about in terms of music and movies, one of my favorite films is High Noon. I love that movie for a lot of reasons, but one of it is the music. It's like you're immediately transported into that feeling and, and whatnot.
1: High Noon is one of the greatest movies ever for me. And what I love about High Noon is you get the dread of time from the minute the movie starts. It's, it's that dread of time. You know it's going down. That's one of the films where the title tells you it's going down. <laughs> like this, is going. Down. The title won't really tell you nothing. Tombstone.
0: Yeah, no. The title won't yeah, really yeah, no. tell
1: you nothing in Shane. Unforgiven. It tells you a little bit. Like okay, something's happening, and <laughs> someone's not going to be forgiven real quick. It doesn't really. High Noon. Oh, it's going down.
0: It's going That's one down. Of
1: the, it's going down. Yeah. That's one of the, it's on the nose. Like, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Who <laughs> was <With> Liberty Valance? <laughs> like, someone's getting shot in this movie. <laughs> <You know laughs> what I mean? So, and it's, and what I love is you recognise, like, all of the, like the things that we've spoken about, all of those things are prevalent in The Harder They Fall. The violence, the humour. Because I always say, it's, as crazy as The Hood is... It's super funny. It's literal, literal comedy all day. Like it's it's, it's actual actual comedy. If, we, if you and I listened to The Flies on the Wall in any prison in America, you'd hear laughter. We find humor in the most craziest scenarios. And, and so for me, humor is is as important to drama as tears and sadness. Humor is, is equally important. That, and I tried to get that across in in the Hard Day's Fall, with the, with one particular character who's just in his, as far as he's concerned, he's in his own movie. He'll be written about a hundred years from now, like as far as he's concerned. And so everything he does is kind of has wit, and uh, and those things are really important for me to for me to portray, especially in in a western where you want to show people that. To me, the Hard Day's Fall is the western that people would watch that don't like Westerns.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, but I'm still gonna watch that. Idris Elba, Lake Stanfield, Regina King, John Femir, I have to watch watch this. And then you wanna bring them, you wanna bring them into the environment by having things like humor in it and having people you can relate to. Like that's just one of the even in the teaser, I'm lightning with the blam blams. <laughs> like you you wanna hang out with that dude. Like, I wanna hang out with that dude go sh- go hunting like you, you want to hang out with um with jim beckwith so so humor is a great um is a great ingredient of the heart of a fall mm-hmm. for me
0: well congratulations james on your thank first you. feature film and again thank you so much for making the time to talk with me i really enjoyed it thank you chris to speak soon thanks so much for joining me The Harder They Fall is coming to theaters October 22nd and will be streaming on Netflix November 3rd. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.